0: Hello and welcome to the Scriptures are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe that helps us get more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so excited to have with me today a longtime colleague and friend, a guy who I feel like when he's around, usually he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, This is Dr. Matthew Bowen from uh, BYU, Hawaii, my my old digs. Aloha, Matt. Aloha. It's good to be with you. This week's episode is being sponsored by me, actually, and my book, uh, The Easter Connection, Being Whole, Made Whole with God Through Christ. Uh, that is available now at SiegelBook.com. That's probably your cheapest place to get it and, and easiest, so seagullbook.com. It's a very short and inexpensive, I think it's only 3 or $4 on Siegel Book, uh, an inexpensive uh easter read where i explore an element of the atoning sacrifice of christ in easter that i hadn't recognized or thought of before until i started seeing it through the lens of the covenant and our relationship with god and actually some things that i brought in from relative race and so uh this is uh i think um something that is inexpensive enough that you can enjoy it yourself it's profoundly affected me actually i hope it will you uh, and it's cheap enough this is the gift you could give to your kids or your grandkids for easter or your friends or the people you minister to or whatever else so it's called the easter connection and you can find it at seagullbook.com and i hope that it really makes your easter more powerful and more meaningful this is part of my my uh efforts to help us get more out of the holy week uh, like Elder Stevenson and others asked us to last year in General Conference. Uh, I hope that reading this during the Holy Week would be a meaningful experience for you and your family and your friends. Well, let me just tell our audience a little bit about uh, Matt, or Dr. Bowen. Uh, he's, he's raised in Orem. He re- did his uh, first degree at BYU, uh, and then he went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where he did his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies, uh, and, uh, I will tell you, he is so good with the language and writes like so many fun articles where he looks at like the meaning of names, or if we really get into the word, the meaning of this word in Hebrew. And he's, he's just so good at that. He does beautiful, wonderful things with it. We spent a little time together when he was teaching adjunct at, uh, BYU and Provo. And for a, a long time now, we'll let him tell us how long he's been an associate professor or assistant or associate professor uh, of religious education at, uh, Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Uh, where my heart still is. I loved my time there. Uh, his wife is wonderful. I know her and they have three children. And uh, what else should we know about you, Matt?
1: Well, first it's, it's Susie's birthday. And so this oh. will, when she sees this, you know, I wanted to give her a birthday shout out.
0: Uh, so happy I, birthday.
1: And I, thank you. I, she'll, she'll appreciate that. I And yeah, um, that,
0: that's your wife, right? Not your yep. daughter. Yeah.
1: So I am husband to Susie and, and father to Zach and Nathan and Adele. And we've been here in Hawaii for almost 12 years now, which is
0: crazy
1: wow. because it's gone so fast.
0: Yeah. Time um, flies. Wow.
1: It, it just flies. I'm looking back and I'm like, where did this, where did this go? But um, we love it here. Uh, i I falling in love with the the student body here that we get we're the most international undergraduate student body in of anywhere that I'm aware of yeah. in the United States
0: and no, I, I think that's uh, like it's hands down the most international because yeah. it's it, usually it, more than 50 percent international and if you count, count uh, the local uh, Hawaiian uh, population then it uh, gets more than that and you can make arguments one way or the other on that but
1: and, and so you get to know um, everybody. Like uh, you know, it's so tight knit here. You 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 yeah. get to know a lot of people pretty well, and you just love them. They're yeah. they're they're great. Well, I and know you've know been here.
0: Yeah, I wish I'd been there as long as you were there. But uh, I would say there's I, I love all the BYU campuses, and they all are wonderful and have their own role. But there's really something special about being there. I can remember teaching someone uh, who. Uh, like went back in a semester later, she was the Relief Society president in Mongolia, which is like just brand new growth for the church and someone else who uh, like a few months after being in my class, who was the bishop in, in Japan. And you just feel like, you know, you were really helping the church grow where it's really growing. And it's uh, there's just something so tender about that. It's a it's a wonderful spirit there in so many ways. I
1: love it. So I hope everybody who's listening gets a chance sometime to cross our path over here yeah. and gets to taste it and experience it. It's worth it.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Matt's just wonderful in so many ways, but one of the ways is that he just really gets Isaiah. So I'm so excited to <laughs> uh, to talk to him about the Isaiah chapters in the book of Mormon, which are chapters that a lot of people are like, Oh no. And I'm like, Oh yes. Uh, so uh, amen. Uh, yeah. Amen to that. And, and I hope that after last year we spent, or the year before I, I i want to give the curriculum uh, writers uh, credit they gave us like six weeks in isaiah which i think is the most in-depth that our church members have probably ever done most most church members have ever done in isaiah and so i hope that people had a good enough experience with it that they're more ready for isaiah this year and then we get nephi as a guide and dr bowen as by a guide and uh, it should make it so that this is a great experience i hope everyone's excited rather than dreading it. This is, the, this is the good stuff. So why don't you take us wherever you'd like to go as we're, we're looking at this?
1: I, I wanted to start just by saying that um, when you you think about how much of the Book of Mormon and how much the Book of Mormon writers presuppose Isaiah in their own writings and how much Isaiah is used not only by the Savior in the New Testament— who, other than the Psalms, he quotes more than any anyone else. Yeah, and, and other New Testament writers, Paul, um, Peter, John. Um, you start, and we look. at yeah, the, and re, the, the Book of Isaiah. Revelation
0: is like completely yeah. interwoven with Isaiah.
1: It completely interwoven, and then the Doctrine and Covenants as well. You, you look yeah. at um, the the places where. Isaiah is either full ha, is fully quoted or alluded to you start to get the sense that um we almost should be studying Isaiah even before we get at some of these other scriptures or at least if we yeah. do study Isaiah beforehand and get a handle on Isaiah a little bit then we've really done ourselves a real service in putting ourselves in a position to understand exactly what these writers want us to to get
0: and i very- i couldn't agree more I, in fact I've, I've often said that if you if you really want to understand the rest of scripture well all of scripture presupposes you understand the old testament they just assume that yep. and and so they don't explain it they, they think you're going to bring it with you but especially there are three things that if you can know it opens up every single other book of scripture you have to know the genesis stories and i think most people do you have to understand the covenant which we're getting to and you have to understand Isaiah. If you know those three things, it unlocks so many things that all of the other scriptural writers, including like Christ and the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, all the other scriptural writers assume you know, and and so you're, you're hampered if you don't. So this is good stuff.
1: Yeah, I love it. I, in fact, you've mentioned the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. I, I think you and I will be talking a lot about that as we go yeah. through these chapters, um first it probably worth talking about in in 2 Nephi 11 um where Nephi has ended he's just finished the the uh, a long sermon from Jacob
0: which that he's is quoted. a sermon quoting Isaiah right
1: <laughs> Yeah it's a sermon quoting Isaiah it started with Isaiah 49:22 and ran all the way through um Isaiah 52 verse 2 yeah. And the whole sermon is built on on that text. Yeah. So and after, and it's even alluded
0: to at times where people don't recognize Jacob's alluding to it, but it's in there.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um and, and a lot of the the sermon is actually an interpretation of Isaiah. Yeah. Know, where he's um deriving what he's saying expressly from from Isaiah. Then Nephi breaks it off, and he—he, he, a lot of readers will be familiar with it, the way that he invokes the the three, you know, the the pattern of three witnesses from Deuteronomy 17:6 and Deuteronomy 19:15, where he says, "Now I Nephi write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto all of my people, for he verily saw my redeemer." as I have seen him. So we've got two witnesses right there. And that word redeemer, of course, is really key for Isaiah, a key title because it's a, it's a messianic title and a divine title directly connected with the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the redeemer or the kinsman redeemer of Israel because of the, of the covenant, because specifically because of the Abrahamic covenant. Yep. Um, Later, you remember Isaiah 29, where he calls um, the Lord who redeemed Abraham. Yeah. And and so that's significant. But Nephi has seen um, Isaiah, as he said. Or Christ.
0: And,
1: or yeah, sorry, Nephi seen Christ. Thank you. And Isaiah has seen Christ, and so he's invoked. Himself and Isaiah both as witnesses, and then he says in verse three, and my brother Jacob has also seen him, as I have seen him. Wherefore I will send their words forth unto my people to prove, because you have to do it this way, right? This is the 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 legal way of doing it according to Deuteronomy. Um,
0: yeah, to have two or three witnesses.
1: Yep, to prove or establish unto them that my words are true. Wherefore by the words of three God has said, I will establish my word. Nevertheless, God sendeth forth more witnesses, and He proveth all His words. Nephi could have cited Lehi here, who has also seen him. Yeah. But he. And, yeah. But for, as far as we can tell, Lehi doesn't spend a lot of time. Um, Lehi seems to have really engaged with the words of Zenos, at least as far as we can tell from Nephi's record. But it, it's Jacob and Nephi who have spent the most time so far. Really digging into Isaiah and yeah. explaining what I what the words of Isaiah mean with respect to their family and their their descendants and how they fit into the the, the covenant. And so um, Nephi is going with himself, Jacob, and Isaiah as the witnesses. Now it's in this block of text that we're going to talk about that we get the Isaiah's throne vision and his where he's called to be a prophet, where he sees the Lord sitting on his throne in his temple. So we're going to be looking at the that specific instance where Isaiah does see the Lord. Maybe that's a good way. Since Isaiah sees sees the Lord in the temple, maybe that's a good place to start with Second um, Nephi 12 and verses one through three.
0: All right. Uh, if it's all right, maybe even before that, if I could just uh, yeah, highlight two, two verses that you've kind of alluded to this already, but in 2 Nephi 11. And I think these tell us exactly why Nephi is choosing the chapters that he's choosing and why he's choosing Isaiah. First of all, in verse four, behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. And then he tells us this is why we've got the law and so on. But but he delights. In in demonstrating Christ, and then verse five, and also my soul delighteth in the covenants of covenant. the Lord which He hath made to our fathers. That's the the Abrahamic covenants you've talked about. So really, all of this is about Christ and covenant. That's the whole purpose of everything He's doing. And He'll say that later when He's done with it. We get to Second Nephi twenty-five, and He says, "You know, my soul delights in Christ." And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, and so on. But He's saying it here at the beginning as well. This is why I'm doing this because I want to talk about Christ and covenant. So if we keep that in mind if we have that lens with everything else we're going to read we'll we'll understand it uh, the way Nephi was intending to use it. Perfectly said. So I
1: it, it's interesting that Nephi then begins with the with the temple. Um we we don't pick up with Isaiah 1 verse 1 instead we pick up with Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 and 2 Nephi 12 the, yeah. the word that idea, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days, when, that's a difference than from the the King James text, the mountain of the, the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and all and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye, and let us go up. To the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. One of the thing, one of the key words that I have my students look for, and this is a, I think, an important thing to do when we approach Isaiah or any of the scriptures, is look for key words that repeat, especially key words that repeat that connect us back to the. Abrahamic covenant. And one of the words that connects us back to the Abrahamic covenant here is um, found there at the very end of verse two. So we have the, the establishment of the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple, and the tops of the of the mountains. And then we get this image of like rivers of people, rivers of nations flowing into it. And as um, our listeners will remember, Abraham's covenant, specifically in chapter 17 and in chapter 22, um, involved of the promise of Genesis. Yeah, yeah, involved the promise that Abraham will become a father of many nations. Yeah. So when whenever the word nations or Gentiles shows up in an Isaiah text. Um, I you know we uh a bell should go off in our in our ears. Remember the the Savior Himself when He was talking about why the the words of Isaiah were so important in Second or in Third Nephi twenty three. The words of Isaiah are, are great not just because He spoke concerning all things pertaining to the house of Israel, but He also spoke concerning the the Gentiles or the nations, mm-hmm. the the Goyim. Um, and in second Nephi 25, after he gets done quoting all of the Isaiah material, um, Nephi says, wherefore I write, this is in verse three of chapter 25, wherefore I write unto my people and unto all those that shall receive hereafter these things, which I write that they may know the judgments of God that they come upon all nations, according to the word which he has spoken and it's interesting that in this chapter i have got an article that i where i where i'm talking about this um the king james text mentions the nations twice in chapter 12 but nephi's text mentions it four times mm-hmm. um the judgments of of god are going to come upon the nations and and nephi wants to make sure that we understand that point but the nations or the Gentiles are also connected to the Abrahamic covenant through this through this promise that Abraham would become a father of many nations. And then I ask, I will ask students in my Isaiah class, well, how does the temple that's talked about in this latter-day temple that's mentioned in chapter or verses two through three, how does that then help? Um Abraham become a father of many nations, or how does it work into the fulfillment of this this covenant?
0: And what do you get them to say?
1: Well, they usually recognize that it's the ordinances and the covenants that temples that we the in which we that we enter into in into in temples that then bring someone fully into the covenant. You know, we talk about baptism, and that is. You know, where we enter into the the Abrahamic covenant, but it's not until we receive the fullness of the ordinances of the house of the Lord, the, the yeah. sealing ordinances, that we have the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sealed upon us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think we actually see Abraham enter into the covenant in stages. We've got, you know, 12, 15, 17, or you can throw Abraham chapter two in there. And I think we do as well. Baptism, washing an anointing and, and uh, endowment, and then sealing and so on. Um, and, and I would uh, also say this as we're talking about these nations. So what we also have to remember is that Israel has been scattered throughout all these nations. And, and so often we have Israelite individuals in these nations Uh, And that helps fulfill this part about the seed of Abraham blessing all the earth. But uh, it, because partially you have Israelite individuals in these nations, but they are bringing the people around them with them as they go to the temple or the baptismal fonts, as they make these covenants with God, they're bringing everyone else. And that's also one of the ways that they bless all the nations and that uh, Abraham becomes a father of even more nations. Right. So it's all, all tied together. This, gathering and scattering. I I know I have uh, uh, the follow him guys have mentioned this that a a mutual friend of ours, Lisa Spice, uh, who's a big part of our podcast. uh, She was trying to say uh, scattering and gathering once and she said scattering, which I think is now the technical term for scattering and gathering, right? They're part and parcel. Yeah, they're they're part and parcel. Uh, You can't have the one without the other. Uh, And I've heard uh, just from someone recently that it was the most important thing in the entire world. Uh, that that may have been uh, Russell M. Nelson. So uh, that, uh, but uh, this notion that you're talking about here is part of the gathering of Israel, and that's important stuff.
1: Yeah, and in fact, it was back in First Nephi 22, where Nephi was interpreting Isaiah 48 and 49, where he mm-hmm. he makes that very point that Israel had to be scattered in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, in order for Abraham mm-hmm. to be the father of all nations. It wouldn't have happened. Um, and that, it, it's really interesting to see students, the lights come on when they recognize that, that the, it, the Lord didn't force Israel to um, be wicked or to do the things that led to their being scattering, being scattered. But the Lord used the scattering of Israel to fulfill the covenant.
0: Right. um, And and it's uh, really interesting to be talking about that while we're talking about the Nephites because they're the one group I know of that were actually scattered because of their righteousness. Yeah. So they were scattered to avoid the destruction and scattering that would happen to the the, uh, kingdom of Judah, but they're scattered for their righteousness. So there's he uses... The scattering that is the humbling technique for some, and he uses the scattering that's the preserving technique for others. But the scattering's part of the plan. And Brent Gardner and
1: John Gee and Matt Roper and others have done some interesting work on what these, what this specific block of text that we're looking at would have meant for the Nephites themselves. Like the you you have in Second Nephi five the building of the temple in the land of Nephi, which would very much fit this image of being built, a temple built in the highlands or in the the tops of the mountains, and then what what these texts would have meant to Nephites who are uniting probably with groups of Gentiles who are already here in some way, although Nephi doesn't really um, explicitly talk about them but yeah.
0: they're there are likely but, other it, people around
1: but yeah but this would have had a contemporary relevance for Nephi's, Nephi's people as well it's yeah. interesting that Paul Hoskinson pointed out that, that that word when is an interesting Hebraism I mean, he's, if for anybody who's interested you could, there's a, an interpreter article from a few years ago where he talks about that as another Hebraism
0: yeah in verse 2
1: yeah um the the when as um sometimes you get these these sentences that look like they're not ever really completed like if and 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 those type of things and this fits that that kind of thing he points out
0: yeah yeah it's a when and right yes yeah yeah so okay good well what so, else should we talk about
1: well i i guess i just love the i guess just with what's going on in the world and a lot of us see the ugliness but verse four that when he says and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke a better word there would be adjudicate he shall adjudicate many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not live lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore um when the savior comes he's going to be that kind of judge
0: yeah um well and, and maybe i can the, comment on that a little bit because uh, in my estimation of the way a judge is used especially by the prophets of the old testament it it's it's used in the idea of making things the way they should be you make things right um and in Isaiah, we get a really interesting theme developing, especially the second half of Isaiah, which we're not in here, but uh, of, of God trying to relieve oppression. And so he pleads with the oppressors to stop oppressing. But if they won't, the only way to relieve oppression is to remove the oppressors. Right. And so I think that's part of what is being talked about here. He shall judge among the nations, So he's going to come and try to make things right now making things right includes making sure the poor are taken care of and the fatherless are taken care of and so on but it also means if there's one person oppressing another or one nation oppressing another that he will have to change that and so that, i think that's that adjudicate thing that you're you're talking yeah. about there right many people and that that people were there as again like a nation many many nations many groups right so he's he's going to have to come in and stop all the oppression in whatever way if they respond to plead, easy way or hard way we could say it, right if they respond to pleading's great if not then we'll do it the hard way but once he has re- just made everything right among everybody and stopped all oppression then there is no, no no more need for war so you don't need your swords you don't need your spears right and so i think understanding that the idea of judge and and rebuking or adjudicating uh, helps us make even more sense out of the the beautiful situation it's describing in this verse.
1: I I love that, and I I think that helps explain too the you know the the leveling off of these high ones. You notice yeah. that there's a, a a proliferation of language of of the haughty and the high and the proud yeah. and the arrogant being brought down, and then. I think it's in verse 11 where he says that he says, and it shall come to pass that the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Um, I know that the, and, you, and you're aware of this as well, that most of the in fact, maybe all of the words in Hebrew that refer to pride also denote elevation. Yeah. and And that fits in really well with what, lehi and nephi saw about the great and spacious building and what that was like and then that that human high and
0: lifted up is the phrase right
1: yep Yep. and human self-exaltation and human elevation is going to be brought down i love what president irene said about this about the lord alone shall be exalted in that day he has a great quote on this where he says that in that day um all of us that thought we were really special will seem a little bit smaller, but we, <laughs> that's because we will see him and realize how much we love him. And yeah. President Nelson has talked recently about that when we see the Lord um, in person, that we will be overwhelmed to the point of tears when we see him, because we realize how much we love him and, and just what he's done for us and what that means. We'll yes. all feel um, it will be a humbling experience for every one of us. Everybody.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it, I think we'll all be like Moses and say, Now I know. Basically, we say, so Now exactly. I know that I am nothing. Right. And it's not at the same time, we'll feel, I think we will feel more valued than we have ever felt and also recognize how amazing. And, and powerful and loving our are, are God and his son are. And so we'll we'll sense the gap, but also the potential at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful paradox to feel, right? Yeah. Um, because so often we take it in the wrong direction in either way, right? We either feel really overly proud about ourselves or things we've done, or we become so self-deprecating and um, almost to the point of self-abuse yeah. About and when when it really that's neither of those things are what the Lord is after. We it is important to understand, as King Benjamin said, our our worthless and fallen state. He doesn't say that we're worthless and fallen. And so it's a it's it's the state we're in, but also that the the Savior who is so great and so wonderful, um, is here to lift us up and ex you know. To lift us up to the Father as exalted sons and daughters, um, and I think that's why He told Moses over and over before Moses had that realization. You remember in Moses one yeah. eleven, where He, where He kept saying, "Moses, my son, Moses, yeah. my son," preparing him for <laughs> the yeah. reality that's just going to hit him in the face.
0: Well, I think the reality probably started immediately as Moses realizes, yeah. I can't even survive this presence without being transfigured. Oh, In fact, I I'll just... Uh... I'll just suggest uh, that my audience uh, go back. This would be one of the first, maybe it's like the second episode I ever did uh, on this podcast where we did Moses chapter one. And I I was also the guest on uh, follow him with Hank and John um, for this, where we talked about how you see in Moses one, this pattern of exactly what we're talking about. God both humbles and ennobles Moses at the same time. He's he's doing both at the same time. And that's a cycle that has to be happening for all of us. Well, if we were all perfectly self-humbling all the time then it wouldn't have to happen but given that we're not that's a cycle that has to have to be happening for all of us all the time yep I and that's exactly that. what you talk about we've we've got to be humbled in the right way not too extreme but humbled and uh, but at the same time ennobled in recognizing like you said Mo- moses or uh susie happy birthday my daughter right uh I, I, it, like uh that that we've got to have both happening at the same time and neither one of them in the wrong direction or to the wrong extreme.
1: Well said, very well said. So should we go on to chapter 13?
0: Uh, Sounds good to me. I mean, there's none of these that we could, we could, uh, I think we honestly could spend an hour just on any given couple of verses, but let's, let's not let's, uh, but but let's do a couple more deep dives on a couple of different passages.
1: I think maybe one thing to just maybe mention in Chapter 13 is the um, we're looking at a society there that is really falling apart, mm-hmm. and there are explanations why. At the end, I, I've noticed a lot of students are really taken by the, the long list of women's finery at the end of the chapter. I try yeah. to help them see that it's not women in the society in particular that are the problem, but the daughters of Zion are really used as a metonymy for really the whole society and what the whole society values.
0: Exactly. Right. A part for the whole is what we mean by metonymy. Right. And, and, and I think intentionally saying we're going to take what it should be the most pure, precious part. And if this part's having this problem, just think about the whole kind of,
1: I think that's it. And so he goes into this long list and as you read through it with students and they're going through it, they realize this is going on and on and on and on with, with these items. And it, I, I try to help them see, well, there's a, Isaiah has a point in itemizing this and, and going into gory detail. In fact, some of the words in the Hebrew Bible that are in this list are only here. Yeah. Um, And that's the, the reason he does that. He zeroes in and he, excessively focuses on these material items these beauty items because that's what they're focused on they're it's they're focused on the the wrong things yeah and then at the end of it all there's you know a depopulating war where you know thy men fall by the sword and by mighty in war and that is that's sort of the context for what we get in chapter 14, verse one with the absolutely
0: the taking hold of the one. And yeah, um, people should ignore the chapter break. It's verse one is really the last thought uh, of chapter three.
1: But then we break into, yeah. And then there's the, you know, in the day of uh, in the day that day, the branch of the Lord shall Ch- that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth, excellent and comely to them that are escaped of Israel. So we've got a, a, a reference. It's a little bit of an anticipation of this idea of the remnant shall return, right? Yeah. The naming of Isaiah's son that we get in Isaiah seven or second Nephi 17 um, the remnant shall return. And in, We've got a subtle reference to a book of life in which the um, names are recorded in chapter three. And we've got a a ritual. We've got both ritual purification and a um, fire or ethical purification in in verse four and then more temple allusions in in verse five and six of chapter 14. Um, do we want to talk about that? Versus,
0: <laughs> so I I, if you'd like to, I mean, I think it's a beautiful stuff. Uh, there's some great symbolism there. So it's completely up to you.
1: Yeah. I, I, one of the things, well, I, I asked them to read and often we, we will have sung a hymn like um, Redeemer of Israel or something like that, you know, where you've, you've got the language, a shadow by day, a pillar by night. And when they think about it, most students recognize, okay, we've got, an allusion here back to the Exodus and the the way that the Lord appeared, um, way his, the way His presence was manifest with Israel in, in the during their wilderness journey. Yeah. And the idea of He says there in verse six, there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime and from the heat, and for a place of refuge and a covert. Um, from storm and from rain. That word for refuge there um, is one that it occurs frequently in the Psalms with reference to the temple and Jehovah himself and his wings being a place of refuge or um, when, you know, that, that people or that the psalmist repeatedly talks about taking refuge in. Um so I will ask students here often. So, how is the temple? How is the Latter Day Temple a place of refuge for
0: you? Good. And 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 hopefully it is for everyone. Like it has been for me, even within the last week, right? But um, and there's there's something wonderful going on here where we've you know at the end of chapter three and this first verse of chapter four. So that's thirteen and fourteen, Isaiah three and 4, four, Second Nephi thirteen and fourteen. And, and we'll discuss the, some of that a little more in depth in our second episode this week with Tammy Call. But um, uh, you've got this terrible situation being described and God humbling them. But the the great thing about chapter 4 or 14 is that it shows us the humbling works, right? So you get uh, in the end, people that are left in Zion and remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, right? And, and that's... Uh, I mean, that almost reminds me of Third Nephi, where, okay, all the wicked yeah. died, and it's just the more righteous that stay, right? And when all the filth is gone and so on, then, as, as you talked about, then we get this this promise that basically uh, this, the refuge and the, the cloud and everything that you're talking about. I mean, think of what the, the cloud and the fire, the role it played in the tabernacle when they were in the Exodus. It, the, I mean, it was partially to protect them, partially to show them where to go, but the biggest role it played was to show them God was there. God was with them. And so I think that's part of what Isaiah is invoking here is once you've stopped looking for the wrong thing in the wrong way, uh, once you've been humbled and come to me, once what's left is is holy and you've gotten rid of the bad. And he he says the same thing in chapter one, which we don't have here, but, you know, cease to do evil, learn to do well. And then we've got, got the... uh uh, let us reason together though your sins be a scar they'll be white as snow that same idea once you've done all that then i will be with you i will be your refuge i'll be your guide i'll be your protection we can be with god well what is a better promise than that
1: i i love it and one of the things i was reminded of here i if, if anyone has ever served in a bishopric or a relief society presidency or a stake presidency or or Elvis corn presidency or, or young
0: women's or, pattern
1: yeah. with with we and I've experienced this we try to do things our way <laughs> and then we get the, the, the negative consequences <laughs> once we we figure out that our own way isn't getting us anywhere and then we decide we're going to do things the Lord's way then we get the kind of blessings that are described there in the last half of that, um, that last half of that chapter.
0: Yeah, and and, and it, it's really true in long. those presidencies. It's also at least for me true, in just in my life, like I keep trying to do things my way, and it's not working out. And then you're like, "Oh, okay, God, what is it you really and want it, me?" And to it,
1: do? it's a lesson that we, I at least I feel I shouldn't have to relearn, but inevitably I I do. Yeah, and we move on to chapter fifteen. Sounds good this very first verse lets us understand that a helps us to understand that a, a parable of some kind is is coming uh, right I, then will I sing to my well beloved um the the word there's d d
0: um yeah do right yeah. yeah and they'll be
1: familiar with the name David um yeah. which means beloved, so you know there's some possible messianic echoes there, especially with what comes next. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. So we've got to have since it's a vineyard, we've got to have grape vines and such there, but also it is a a fruitful here. The the word there is keren shemen, which means um, a horn of oil. So we've got olive trees there. And a lot of um readers here will pick up on the similarities the 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 phraseological similarities that we get in the song of the vineyard that comes next with the allegory of the olive tree that's preserved for us by Jacob in Jacob chapter 5
0: right exactly and and uh it, it's it's great stuff and it's it's worth uh noting the the in English, you can't quite get the uh, uh, the alliteration and the rhyming and so on that <clears throat> he's using as he talks about, you know, the beloved is Diddy and then Dodi and Karim. And then he said, Karim, Karen, uh, Karen. So maybe I'll just read it a little bit. Just I'm not very good at yeah. reading musically, but just so people can can get an idea, I would go something good idea. like, Asherah, uh, Sharath, La Diddy, Dodi, La Carmo, La Carim. Nala Didi, Nala Didi, Kerem, Karen, Karen, Ben, Ben, Shaman. Right. So uh, yep. it it's just, uh, and I didn't read it with good rhythm because I, I'm not good at that, but uh, hopefully we get the idea that there's, there's really um, some, uh, 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 beyond what we can tell in English, there's just this poetic brilliance that is going on with Isaiah.
1: And, and, one of the things I I usually introduce this idea on the first day when I talk about Isaiah, that we I'll ask them what the who is was the, the the best um in all of our literature in English? Who is who is the user of English par excellence? And most yeah. will recognize that as Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, because that's where they the go the sheer breadth
1: of the his vocabulary. Fact the the sheer number of words that he coins there yeah. are lots of words that he coined that we still use every day. Yeah. I say that was Isaiah for his people.
0: Yeah,
1: he was. Yeah. He broadest vocabulary. Um, and I think that's one of the re- one of the reasons, not the only reason, of course. It, it's his the testimony of Christ that I think that Nephi values above all else. But, if you've got someone who's bearing testimony of Christ and they're doing it in what would compare to almost a Shakespearean way, yeah, and your native language, that that's one of the reasons Nephi loves Isaiah so much,
0: yeah. No, he he is uh, uh, as powerful a poet as has existed in the world, I would say. Uh, yeah. re- it, regardless of the fact that he's also as powerful a testifier of christ as there has ever been uh you know and put the two together and that's dynamite i would agree yep so
1: the 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 song or parable that follows is similar to um the parable that nathan the prophet gives david in a way in in second samuel 12 in that it gets the um the house of Israel and the men of Judah to pronounce judgment against themselves, you know, when he, yeah. he, he says, um, and now o inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge, I pray you betwixt me and my vineyard. So it brought forth wild grapes rather than grapes, That yeah. he, the grapes he was looking for. But that invitation to to pass judgment, then um, the reveal then comes after that, as it did for David. Da- Nathan okay. got David to levy a judgment against himself, and then famously, um, Nathan says, thou, "Thou, art the man." Yeah, and it, it's similar here with with Isaiah explaining. Um, verse 7 For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. For he looked for judgment, mishpat. And there's that making things yeah. right again, right? Yeah. And but but, but behold, oppression, Mispah. Yeah. Instead of righteousness, Tzadakah, but behold, a cry, tzadaka. So yeah. things are. He's looking for one thing and he's getting something that's off and it's and, and in Hebrew you see the it's easier to see It was interesting to see I think it was Victor Budlow years ago. Um, he looked for riot righteousness and he got riotousness I guess yeah. if you want to, to make a good try to transfer the idea of the word play into to English.
0: I think Victor was better at that than anyone I've seen where he would really look at, at the wordplay in Hebrew and then find a, a somewhat equivalent wordplay in, yeah. in English. Josh Sears has been working on that recently a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's powerful.
1: Yep. I love it.
0: And, and this so, whole thing, as you said, is really God trying to show us like, in some ways the crux of it is after you said, you know, uh, judge, you know, between us and so on. But then he said, um, what could have been done more to my vineyard, and we'll hear echoes of what could I have done more in my my orchard, right, or with my olive yard? You could say, uh, but what could I have done more that I have not done? And, and we're going to get this from God. Like I am doing everything I can to get you to come to me. So I'm just going to remind my audience that just last week when we were doing uh, Jacob's sermon and his quotations of Isaiah, uh, and I was doing that with Andrew Skinner, um, and uh, but I, I, I told them if you look at these verses where God is saying. You know, have I cast thee off? Where's the bill of your divorcement? That in many ways, that's the theme for all of Second Nephi, and especially for what Jacob and and Nephi are trying to say with Isaiah. It's this continual pleading, like, I am not trying to get rid of you. I'm doing everything I can, and you keep leaving me. Please come back to me.
1: That's the idea that Moroni put on the title page of the Book of Mormon. The remnant of the house of Israel might know that they are not. And might know the covenants of the Lord that they are not cast off forever. There's a That's good it. covenant reference in 13 where he says, therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge.
0: Yeah. Knowledge
1: or da'at in Hebrew is a covenant term. Um, they lack covenant knowledge. They lack a covenant knowledge of God. They lack a covenant knowledge of God's covenant with Abraham and with their ancestors
0: um, and I, I see an echo there with like, for example, when Nephi said that his brothers murmured because they knew not the doings of their God. Right. Yep. It's that same thing. You you why don't you see what God is doing with us here? And I think God's pleading the same thing. Why don't you see I'm just trying to help you? But you keep selling yourself for naught, as it were.
1: And in verse 26, um, we get a, a reference to the another reference to the nations. This in this one, um, this one seems to be where the enzyme, which is a theme throughout Isaiah, the lifting up of the enzyme or the standard or the banner, those three words are usually, yeah. usually translated by one Hebrew word, nace.
0: Yeah, or from one Hebrew word. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: which again but, ends up being a play on word because it's close to the word for lifting up. But anyway, yeah. yeah.
1: And in this case, he's hissing or whistling or signaling to, to the nations from afar. And this seems to be a reference to the Assyrians to, to come in, and this is going to be a part of the scattering. But in chapter 21 or Isaiah 11, we're going to get a reversal of this where the enzyme is lifted up or raised again. And instead, or to the nations, but instead of armies of, you know, military armies coming in to destroy or to scatter, we've got armies, we um, a gathering of, of Israel.
0: Right. So I guess we could say the ensign is about the scattering of Israel again, right? Sometimes it's about the scattering, which is a a, a necessary part of the gathering. Um, and, and so that ensign is going to be lifted to call people into humble Israel. And then once they're humbled to bring them back to him, uh, so that they can be with them like we talked about when we're doing the imagery of the cloud and the fire, right? It's that same theme.
1: Yep, exactly. And that then brings us to, um, this is one I hope we would get to and we could talk about is Isaiah's call called to be a prophet, because this is, when we talked about chapter 11 and, and Nephi and Jacob and Isaiah being witnesses of Christ, witnessing the premortal Christ, um, this is where that happens. And I think this is one of the reasons this is part of Nephi's organizing principle. You mentioned the, the Christ and the covenants.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: th- this is where he, Isaiah sees him. Um, last regnal year of I, uh, the reign of King Uzziah, Um We think this was about 740.
0: Yeah. Somewhere around there.
1: Uh, yeah where he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That train is the long flowing robe or garment. And the location here is important, and sometimes we just kind of miss it. Isaiah is in the temple, which means he was serving as a temple priest, and or it seems to suggest that. And that's, that would be consistent with what we see with Jeremiah, who was also um, from one of the priestly families in Anathoth and Ezekiel was also a, a temple priest before yeah. the, before his exile. And there, um, that could have been the case with, uh, with some others.
0: Yeah. And it's hard to tell, I mean, cause this could be, I mean, I think this is what we might call the temple in heaven. Right. And, uh, and so is it, does that mean that Isaiah was serving in the temple in, uh, in judah i i don't know right and we get interesting things like we have hezekiah who's not a priest but he's going into the temple and is that because he's the king or is he holding melchizedek priesthood or some special dispensation i i don't know Psalm uh, what's that yeah, oh, Psalm yeah that's right
1: that suggests that those kings of judah were if that was used generationally um that suggests that a, a melchizedek
0: yeah, it Pretty does. Although we have, uh, I think, isn't it Isaiah who also is struck with leprosy because yeah, he's trying right. to do some more verses? So it's uh, exactly you get a you get a little bit of a mixed bag here. But uh, I would not be surprised, and and this is total speculation, so I want to be clear about that. But I wouldn't be surprised if Isaiah held a Melchizedek priesthood. Um, I, I would be there. Yeah. In fact, I
1: think that would explain actually some of the things that happen next. Yeah, um, he's he sees the. Heavenly attendants, the seraphim; um, those are represented in iconography, um, and, and and you know this well from Egypt. These these depictions that we get of winged beings. Yeah. Sometimes the the wings actually combine with the arms. Yeah. Like the ivory plaque that was discovered um, up north, and. Um, the seraphim are represented in Hebrew iconography sometimes with two wings, sometimes with four wings. Here they have six wings. Yeah. Um. Sometimes they have the bodies of serpents. Sometimes they walk. Yeah. And, and you know have bodies. And. Um, and I
0: actually think that uh, that some of the. Uh the association with serpents is probably from a couple things. One, there, there's a little Egyptian connection that, that is part of this, but also this idea, yeah. I mean, Saraf means the, a, a burning, burning one, right? Yep. Yeah. I, I, uh, so it's like, I think they're trying to describe a light filled beam, but it's, it, it, I mean, if we're going to translate it, it literally, we'd say both, right? fiery burning one is maybe the, the yeah. uh, a, a literal so translation. Burn,
1: the idea is that, that they burn with celestial glory or the also, you know, on the serpent end but it, the, the, the venom like in numbers 21 right. right and
0: that's the connection i think with the snake right that's because uh, israel already associates snakes with burning and yep. or fiery snakes right so uh, it makes sense that there's a connection there that they see a play on words that they also use as a play on images
1: yeah and the and it was a seraph that Moses lifted up. That was right. the word there in Numbers 21. That was the Nahash nahoshet, the, the, the bronze serpent, but also it's called a seraph. It's yeah. to put a seraph on a, on a pole. And, and since
0: both things are used, we kind of associate it with being a fiery serpent.
1: <laughs> then that brings us to the, of course, there there is some Christological imagery here with um, what happens when Isaiah's terrified of having seen Jehovah, and mm-hmm. because he feels that he's unclean, he's inadequate, he's unworthy, and then you get one of the seraphim flying to him with a an altar or a coal taken off the altar. Right. Um, and there's more that we could talk about there in terms of unpacking the symbolism. If that's taken off the the altar from the outer court rather than the altar of incense we were you have a lot of sacrifices animal sacrifices yeah. that have happened on those
0: coals and and my understanding is and, and I don't know that we can say for sure so my, if I had to guess I'd say this is the altar of incense because he's there at the veil and the house is filled with smoke and so on yeah but my understanding is that that altar is lit with fire from the outside altar yeah um so yep. so the the sacrificial imagery is automatically carried into that place
1: yep that
0: works and verse seven so when
1: it's what it, you know the identity of the, the the seraph that comes you know there, there there's some possible christological imagery there um yeah. at least on a representative level but the cult's placed on is on the part of the the body that he's expressing weakness about Um, And then he's told that his iniquity is taken away and his sin is purged. The word for purge there is tekupar, which is atoned. Yeah. So we have a, perhaps a, um, when those atonement rituals were conducted in the temple, that that happened at a specific time of the year. and, And maybe that's alluded to here.
0: Um, yeah, in, in some way, I mean, whether it's actually alluding to the Day of Atonement or not, it's alluding to the same thing that the Day of Atonement does. And, and so it would make sense to me if it were alluding to Day of Atonement. I don't know. But you're right. The, the symbolism is in, incredible. And and I mean, we can, I think, understand it even a little bit more if we go back to these seraphim right? So you remember they've got they're moving with two wings and the Doctrine and Covenants talking about other seraphim. But, but it tells us like, you, yeah, Section 77, you get the idea that that's power of of movement. Uh, With two, it's covering your feet. And I'm sure there's more symbolism than this, but I think at least part of that has to be like the same symbolism we get when Moses has to take his shoes from off his feet. Your feet are the part that gets filthy, right? And they're the part that literally brings the world with you when you go somewhere. So I think they're covering that. And remember, cover is the word for atone, right? They're covering that. And then with two, they're covering their face. And that, again, reminds me of a veil and this holiness that even Mm. the seraphim... So my guess would be the seraphim are need to be veiled from god's presence because they aren't worthy of god's presence but isaiah probably needs to be veiled from the seraphim because he's not worthy of their presence right we, we have these degrees of holiness that that are actually enacted in the temple where you have the outer court the holy place the holy of holies right so he's someone that's come from the outer and he's now in the inner where the seraphim seem to belong but they can't you know, right. They divide between their and their cherubim do, but it's the same kind of basic idea. And the Holy of Holies where God is. So that's, that's kind of their realm and he's in their realm. So they're, they're veiled from him, but they're also veiled from God. He's veiled from God, but in order to be with them and be able to come into God's presence, he's going to have to have this put on his face that makes it so he doesn't need the veil, right? It's, it's, it's purged, or as you said, atoned. And that's what makes it possible in during the day of atonement to actually come into the presence of God, which is what He is doing. And then in and I, this is where I
1: I will ask students in verse eight. How is Isaiah in verse eight different than Isaiah in verse five? Mm-hmm. Having experienced atonement, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" And most of them will recognize we're dealing if we're doing we've got us there. That means we're dealing with the divine council. And then said, I said, here am I send me. And most will recognize that as we've got Isaiah using words that in the book of Abraham, remember Abraham three, here am I send me where elder Maxwell says that never in so few words has um, one proffered to do so much for so many or offered to do so much for so many as when Christ proffered himself
0: yeah with that phrase I, so, I mean in hebrew that's it's two words right <laughs> yeah inna <he, laughs> and uh, not ne, right or yeah, yeah sorry shlach yeah not give me but uh, send me yeah shlach he, yeah um you're exactly i mean it is so christological
1: and the you remember nephi says that um once that we've passed entered in through the gate we've been baptized we've received the holy ghost now we can speak with the tongue of of angels yeah i mean that's what he's doing here right i think i think nephi is referring back to that i think Joe spencer and some other people have talked about this
0: um yeah i think he's referring in some ways he's mixing some of what he's seen in his vision with what he's reading in isaiah and putting it all together
1: yeah and i I like this idea too that later in second third seventy five thirty two Nephi has to explain that angels speak by the ha- power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ yeah he's now speaking as one of these messengers, one of these angels, and he's actually speaking the words of Christ words that Christ has said in a similar setting in the divine council so yeah. This helps us to see that Isaiah's become, at least, with this calling, the Lord's enabled him to become more like himself. And then he's commissions him with a message to make the message hard. Yeah. And I, I think in verses ten through, or nine and and ten, um, I think most readers of Isaiah can relate to that at least at some time or another.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: And and sometimes it's
0: confusing for people, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. What
1: What I was just gonna say, especially when you read late at night, um, (laughs) (laughs) you're struggling with an uh, insomnia. Um, you know, you could have that kind of experience with your um, eyes being um,
0: (laughs) shut. Are you saying Isaiah is a cure for insomnia? then, but I think people struggle with understanding this because it sounds yeah. like God doesn't actually want people to be healed, and and I I think Christ's use of this in Matthew thirteen helps us understand it a little bit, yeah, where He says, you know, I, I'm trying to say things in a way that those who just aren't going to change are, are not going to understand, but those who are willing to change will understand.
1: Yeah, and this gets picked up um, in Third Nephi. You remember. Where he starts to talk about, come unto me and convert that I may heal you. Yeah. yeah. I want to say Jason Combs has talked about that before, that um the you know, we're hearing echoes of this even in Third Nephi in the words of Christ there.
0: Yeah.
1: Where he's inviting us to come that we may that he may that we might turn, that we might be converted and be and and be healed.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, we probably only have a little bit more we can do. Is there anything more you'd, you'd like to say about this chapter? or
1: I think not about this chapter, but maybe just a few things about 17, 18, and 19, where we get these sons that are mentioned. Um, Isaiah is accompanied by Shear Yashub to um, speak with Ahaz. Right. Um, Ahaz wants an alliance with the Assyrians um and the because he's terrified of um the northern kingdom israel and syria and their attempts to displace him mm-hmm. and to set up the son of tabeal who would not have been a Davidic king that we know of um and you know the the whole idea of the the you know the dynastic promise to david from second samuel 7 comes in Right, and the Davidic covenant. Why is the Lord working with Ahaz, who's not discernibly a righteous king, yet to preserve the the line? And I think Matthew holds the answer to that because he quotes Matthew in, in the New Testament, Matthew one, you know, there are twenty verses twenty through twenty three quotes the Emmanuel prophecy. Right. Um. I think it's important to to recognize that for Nephi, and one of the reasons he's got this that this is in there is that he recognizes that history repeats itself. Yeah. A lot of what's happened in these chapters happened long before Nephi is ever on the scene, but he includes it in the brass or on the, on the small plates because he recognizes that the, the, there is another fulfillment to be had for some of these prophecies. Yeah, Matthew recognized that with the the birth of this son as a sign. Historically, in the eighth century, this was probably a son of Ahaz, one of his wives, or perhaps even a son of Isaiah himself. Scholars go back and forth on who that might have been, but but Nephi and Matthew recognized that this prophecy is going to happen again. Right, yeah. we're going to get. Not just an Emmanuel that's a sign that God will be with the kingdom of Judah and preserve the Davidic dynasty, but that he is God literally yep. with us. And that Matthew, the, the, the gospel writer, recognizes that this, yes, this is Davidic, but it, it applies on such a bigger and broader level when it comes to Jesus Christ and who he is that
0: Amen.
1: God with us in the flesh. And and of course that, you know, we, we would be, we can't get out of here without um,
0: Isaiah or
1: 2nd S- Nephi chapter
0: 19 verse. Well, or, maybe before or, we go there, I I'll just yeah. I just want to say how much I agree with you. Like I think I would say it's all of the above. I think one of the fulfillments of this prophecy is Hezekiah. It has a son. One of them is Maharshala Hashbaz. Isaiah's son and understanding those will help you understand Christ and the greatest, most important and primary fulfillment that you'll understand that better understanding what Christ is or God is Jehovah is doing for the people with these other sons and in these other situations. And, and maybe before, cause I want to let you wrap up on, on chapter 19, but maybe I'll also just say, again, we're just touching, we're just skimming on these things. So some resources that may help our audience. You can go back to, uh, the Old Testament year in our podcast and see when we did some of these a little bit more in depth. Um, and my book learning to love Isaiah is on sale 20% off at com right now. And, and I go more into depth there. So those might be some resources that help you, but why don't we go to the chapter 19? There's some beautiful stuff in there.
1: Well, yeah, I was just going to say at 18, there's, um, the okay. sun, Hashbaz. Mm-hmm. that word for great role. If that is Gil that might actually have reference to a metal plate or a metal mirror. Like the in demotic, you're familiar with this as an Egyptologist, the, the writing on demotic metal mirrors. Mm-hmm. So if he's writing with a stylus or a pen, this might not be a um actually a parchment roll. It might actually be metal that yeah. Isaiah is writing on. Mm-hmm. And then we got the two witnesses there that might echo uh what we talked about in second Nephi eleven. And then Maher Shalal Hashbaz, he speeds the spoil, um, or speeding the spoil, he hastens the prey or something to that effect, swift yeah. destruction. There's a yeah. the son. But then in chapter uh, 19, we've got um, something going on up in um, Galilee of the Nations, and there's that word again, Galilee yeah. of the Nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, as it shows up in Matthew. Some people have pointed to verse one and the change from way of the sea, the Via Maris, Mm -hmm. to way of the Red Sea as being a clumsy accident on the part of the prophet Joseph Smith. I don't agree with that. Um, I think there have been several people who've talked about this. And most recently um, E. John Wilson, I think had an article come out last week where he deals with this issue. But one of the ways of even looking at this, that the King's Highway that, um, also comes down. In fact, it connects into the w- VMRS at one point. But also comes down all the way down to toward Egypt is another thing. All of the armies that invade always come from the same direction. Yeah, up, up there. Um, but to get to to verse um, in in the Gospel of John, you know the the question about Jesus's identity, of the Messiah. Um, they they tie it back to Micah chapter five to Messiah's gotta come from Bethlehem. but what they in the discussion, what they overlook there is we also have messianic prophecies that pertain to this area of Galilee. and this this is um, an example of, of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But we've got the, another son and again the, the language us there I think is significant for unto us. A child is born unto us, a son is given. Some people connect that with the divine counsel, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Um that's also poetic, as you mentioned, if we want to talk about another poetic place, Pele yeah. Yawet, um El Gibor, Abiad Sar Shalom. Um yeah very poetic in the, the way those titles roll out. And I hope all of our readers, when they read or hear those words, they think of Handel's Messiah. Yeah. But I think that is... Um,
0: That's poetic as in a different way.
1: As, as, as inspired as music gets.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And such a beautiful promise, this idea that that Jehovah will be the Christ who will be given to us, and he will be the one who eventually governs all of us in, in the right way, right? With that judgment and making everything right so that he'll be a wonderful counselor because he is a mighty God. He will be an everlasting father, but he also, Prince of Peace, he brings us that peace that we so want. Uh, that is a beautiful, beautiful promise.
1: That brings it back to what you talked about, about what kind, you know, When we talked about what kind of judge he will be. Um, yeah. You know, r- making things right. So and that's also what shalom means. When we talk about um, judgment or mishpat, um, shalom is similar. Um, shalom is there's completion. Things are really as they should be in their completeness.
0: Yeah. Which actually that, the word for perfection, you know, tamim is also uh, along those lines. Which, by the way, thummim comes from that word in the Yeremithum. Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, they're all connected. All those ideas. Well, thank you, Dr. Bone. Maybe uh, if it's all right, as we wrap up, I'd just love to ask you with um, all of your, your wonderful studying, um, how has it affected your relationship with the scriptures and how has that affected your relationship with God? I didn't tell you we're going to have that question. So the audience should know I'm just surprising him right here, but. uh, I,
1: you know, my mom once talked about how she was really, touched by the Tabernacle Choir's um, rendition of my words were found and I did eat them Hmm. and my word was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart Nephi tells us to feast on the words of Christ and I can't help but think that he has he might have a little of Jeremiah or what he had of Jeremiah in mind but I think he has Isaiah more in mind in terms of what we can, what words that we can eat and, and feast on. Um, one of the things I'm just profoundly struck by when I read the scriptures and I, I, and I feel the spirit, you, you know that, the those prophets who wrote these words and took the time to get them down and those who then later transmitted their words they they did it not only out of a sense of obligation but more out of even out of love love for the lord who uh, of whom the the words bear witness but they they loved him these were men who had and uh, people men and women who uh, who experienced the atonement of Jesus Christ who felt and understood and and, and knew that they were redeemed by him and i th- i think we all have experiences in life where we will at some point feel the love of god and know that he loves us. And those experiences are life changing. I've had those experiences as I've been sitting in the pews at church. Um, and I've had them as I've been sitting in the temple, but I've had many, many, many of them when I've been sitting and reading the scriptures, particularly the, the book of Mormon and including the words of Isaiah. But also the other scriptures as well, the Old Testament, the the New Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. I, I, I can honestly say I love them all. Yeah. But I've had these experiences where I have felt the the Lord telling me that how much He loves me and He gives me encouragement to to keep going. And um, I. When he said in in, in that song thy the words of Jeremiah, thy word was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I I really feel that. Um, yeah. I I don't pretend to be someone who knows everything. Um, we get these degrees, these doctoral gr- degrees that were that tell us we know a lot, right? But you know, I'm always surprised at how much I don't know, and mm. I'm always. My students teach me all the time. The Holy Ghost is teaching me all the time, and I love it. I love that the the gospel is simple enough for a, even a child to live, learn, to understand and live. But yet, it, the the doctrines and principles are so rich that they would exhaust a hundred lifetimes or more to to really get a handle on. So. Amen.
0: And, you know, as you say that, I, I have to, I think um, something that John A. Woodson once says and, uh, said, and, and John A. is pro- probably, I think, still the greatest educator we've had just uh, in terms of brilliance and reach of what he was able to research and get that research out there and, and make a real difference in people's lives. Just an incredible educator. And, and when he described what a PhD was, he said, a PhD doesn't mean you know everything. It means that you are now able to keep learning on your own. And yeah. uh, and what I hope is that uh, podcasts like this and other great things that that people are doing, um, I hope it becomes like the the graduate program for everyone. Uh, but that uh, we're just helping everyone a little bit. But really, everyone is becoming more and more capable because of this. But mostly because of what they do on their own, becoming more and more capable of going to the scriptures and then with the Holy Ghost learning on their own. So I hope that's part of what's happening. We we want.
1: To teach people to feed themselves from the scriptures. Yeah. That really is the goal.
0: Um
1: to and I I, nothing gratifies me more than when students come back, you know, even years after having had me as a as a teacher and talked about the way that we studied the scriptures in class and through our assignments, how it helped them to learn to feed themselves
0: from the scriptures.
1: That that is that is the goal.
0: Amen to that. Amen. To bring
1: it because it will. It brings us all closer to to Christ, and just to to bring it back there. You know the we've been talking about the the covenants, Christ, and the the covenants in these chapters, and that's what it's all about. That's yes. what the temple is all about.
0: Yes, absolutely. Amen. So, well, thank you. I know that this has been uh, wonderful for me, and I hope that uh, our audience will share it with others uh, through social media or likes, rates, reviews, downloads, whatever you can do to share with, talk to people about it, whatever you can do. Uh, we'd encourage you to listen to the other episode this week, which I already mentioned is Temu Hall, um, And then you should be excited for next week. We're going to do something kind of interesting. Uh, one of our guests is going to be uh, Ginalyn Condi. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about 2 uh, Nephi 25 and 26. But we're also going to have, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll be familiar with the Rabbi Joe Charnas. And he's going to come on. I've asked him to talk with us about, I want to see a, a Jewish rabbi's take on Nephi's interpretation of Isaiah. So I think that's going to be fun. And he's not the kind of guy that's going to pull punches. He, he'll... He, he'll be friendly and and so on, but I mean he's 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 a rabbi. He'll say, "Well, I don't know about this," but uh, <clears throat> so I'm interested to see where that goes and and the things that he likes and the things he has questions about. I think that'll be a fun discussion. So we'll invite everyone to be part of that next week. So again, this has been wonderful for me, uh, Matt. Thank, thank you, you so much. Wow. Uh, thank I, you.
1: It's been a really a pleasure for me too and an honor, and I, I I'm thankful for the invitation.
0: Well. Thank you, and uh, and and thanks to our audience. Bless you all. Yep.